Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline Podcast Series. I am Valeria Scuto, Middle East and North Africa Analyst, and I will be joined today by our Middle East North Africa Associate Analysts, Rhiannon Phillips and Anastasia Chisholm, to discuss the implications of the upcoming parliamentary elections in Lebanon. Notably, these will be the first vote since the onset of a protracted economic crisis, as well as the devastating Beirut port explosion in August 2020, which many believe are the outcomes of rampant corruption and chronic mismanagement by the country's political elites. It is also the first major electoral test since the youth-led protest movement in October 2019. However, unfortunately, what we've seen over this past year and most recently is that the transition from a protest movement to a political entity in Lebanon has been fraught with bureaucratic hurdles, ideological dilemmas, and organizational challenges. As such, coalition building, particularly after the vote, will be an uphill task. In particular, the absence of a united front from independent candidates has been something of not concern, but which has been looked at quite closely. It is the first time in which there is such a high number of opposition and independent candidates, but these have failed to propose themselves as a united front ahead of Sunday's polls in in Lebanon. Regardless of how the election will go this Sunday, what will be interesting to see is that for the first time, Lebanon will have a non-confessional bloc in parliament and therefore a non-confessional representation. The biggest difference in this 2022 vote is the absence of Saad Hariri, former prime minister and a Sunni Muslim political heavyweight who made the shock announcement last January that neither he nor his future movement party would be running in these elections. The move has left many Lebanese Sunnis disenfranchised, uh, with uh, many saying that they would not be heading to polls and that they would just boycott these upcoming elections. So what we are expecting to see is some Sunni stronghold districts to have a lower voter turnout than the previous elections in 2018. Beyond this, most of Lebanon's traditional parties have put forward candidates. Shia and militant group Hezbollah has presented most of the MPs that won the seats in 2018. And the parliamentary leader, Mohamed Rad, um, is among those running again. Similarly, we've seen the same trend with uh, the Amal party, a strong Hezbollah ally, and uh, Gibran Basil, the controversial son-in-law of President uh, Michael Aoun and his free patriotic movement are also running. So are the Lebanese forces, the Christian-led and strong critic of Hezbollah. And Samir uh, Gegea's wife is among the candidates presented by the LAF. Over the past week, the Lebanese diaspora has started to cast their votes, which has been looked uh, quite closely as a potential indicator of how these polls will go. The Lebanese diaspora is now estimated to be double the size of the Lebanese domestic population. Their numbers have swelled during the economic crisis, and they have been some of the most vocal proponents of change for Lebanon's political and economic system. However, the main question remains. Can the conventional system, 
entrenched political interests and opposition divides bring the change that most Lebanese seek? Thank you very much for joining in today. Rhiannon, Hezbollah has been one of the most interesting parties to look at. They have dominated the elections, as I had mentioned earlier, and have shifted significantly sort of their strategic and political objectives over these past months. What should we look out for? Thank you, Valeria. Yeah, as you said, since the beginning of the year, we've actually seen a slight shift in Hezbollah's uh, rhetoric from one of kind of completely boycotting the government and, and trying to really spoil politically as much as they can. And this included a, a refusal to attend any form of parliamentary session. And as you said, they, they make up quite a lot of the uh, of parliament. So this shifted then. They, they agreed to resume cabinet sessions on the 24th of January after this three-month hiatus, which was joined by the Amal movement. And for context, their decision to cooperate, according to leadership, was part of efforts to secure this 2022 state budget and advance an economic recovery plan. And then also what we can see then, which is more in line with the, with the voting at the moment, is that this change in rhetoric is also maybe part of their efforts to remove themselves as a spoiling party and actually representative of the solution to Lebanon's problems. I think the leadership recognised the danger in population recognising Hezbollah as, uh, and their allies as, as being directly associated with Lebanon's socioeconomic grievances ahead of the election. So it's definitely strategic. However, in recent days, as I said, we kind of saw the shift towards cooperation, but we have seen a kind of return by Chief uh, Nasrallah to kind of more inflammatory and provocative language. And, and this isn't just by the leadership himself, but it's also by kind of aligned voters. And, you know, despite this period of supposed pre-electoral silence, which has been implemented by Lebanon's electoral supervisory committee as of the 5th of May, this basically is a period where candidates and parties are not allowed to publicly campaign or make any television appearance until the day of polling. And what this is supposed to do is to kind of ensure impartiality, transparency, etc. after the UN specifically kind of aired concerns over that the election wouldn't be free and transparent with reason. We've seen a number of accusations made by opposing parties towards Hezbollah, including the Lebanese uh, forces, accusing them of, of violating electoral law and, and asking them to be fined. And aside from this, we've also seen instances of vote buying, including by the Amal movement, candidates in their Beirut 2 districts. They've kind of purchased generators, really targeted vulnerable areas socioeconomically and used bribery and kind of vote buying and, and food tokens to, to get them to vote for the party. So we're seeing lots of kind of violations of electoral role, um, laws. And then back to, as I was saying, with the inflammatory language, we've seen that Hezbollah has not stuck to this electoral silence. So um, Masrallah organised scooter rallies on the 9th of May in urban areas and, and addressed followers saying that the, the 15th May polls were a political July war, which is, again, incredibly inflammatory. And he's kind of called on his party to preserve this military resistance, which doesn't bode well for the kind of this simmering of sectarian tensions. So again, these large-scale gatherings, what we've seen is, is embassies have actually called for, for kind of warnings for, for assets and, and personnel and businesses uh, located, located in country. So we are definitely seeing an increase in kind of tensions sectarian-wise. Sticking towards Hezbollah, though, they have expressed, you know, Nasrallah speaking most days, and he's expressing that he doesn't see any other option than his party being a majority in parliament. And he's kind of strongly indicated that there'll be repercussions if the vote doesn't go their way. And so this is definitely something to watch out for. He said that under a sectarian system such as Lebanon's, any talk of majorities and minorities is unrealistic. 
So we can already see a kind of precursor to fissures and complications over what government formation is going to look like under this current system. And as I expected, we're going to see kind of many influential figures beyond Hezbollah as well and previous politicians stating that the party is dangerous and, and remains kind of powerful in Lebanon's political system. They'll basically fail to enact any meaningful change. So, you know, long story short, to answer your question, Hezbollah is definitely seeking to maintain its majority. But equally, what we're seeing is that they want kind of the maintenance of the political status quo to suit their strategic interests at the expense of probably the population. Thank you. Yeah, definitely one to, to watch out for, most notably the fact that Hariri and his party will, will not be running, and sort of leaves a lot of Sunni voters for Nasrallah to, to convince, considering the Christian voters that they, they have lost and sort of the popularity uh, among them. But Anastasia, we know that there's a lot of anticipation for these elections. And could you summarize, what are the Lebanese people expecting? What are they hoping to achieve? What are the, the sentiments running these days? Oh, of course. I mean, to put it simply, voters are hoping for long overdue political change that will disrupt the status quo and set in motion processes to resolve the country's dire economic crisis. Now, we've seen some positive indication that expatriate voters particularly are hopeful and hungry for change. Figures show that the turnout among the Lebanese diaspora community reached about 60%, with about 100 30,000 expatriates across the world are casting their ballots. Now, the 60% turnout isn't too much higher than four years ago uh, when it was reported at 50%, but it reflects moderate to high levels of enthusiasm among expatriate populations, further highlighted by the tripling of electoral registrants since 2018. But this spirit of change is less tangible on the ground in Lebanon, where residents face a host of severe socioeconomic concerns against the backdrop of simmering public resentment over elite corruption and government ineptitude. Now, the intense anger visible on Lebanon's streets in 2019 has somewhat abated following the COVID-19 pandemic and the country's descent into economic collapse. For residents across the country, for instance, Tripoli, Lebanon's poorest city, the ongoing clientelist nature of politics may seem like the only short-term solution for ensuring livelihoods. Now, Sunni voters are notably disenfranchised in the absence of the Future Movement Party and Sunni Muslim former PM Hariri from this year's elections. So despite the rise in independent candidates, we remain cautious of the true ability that these elections have to preside over the political culture and system of institutionalized sectarianism. So overall, despite high levels of public frustration and discontent, there is the perception among many voters on the ground that whatever the results, uh, they will not be able to generate a meaningful change in the status quo. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Some interesting thoughts there and think elements that we've also been uh, tracking uh, through throughout these months. Interestingly, the one a notable absence from political agendas and political campaigning so far has been climate change and environmental issues. Uh, Lebanon has been very uh, vulnerable to wildfires, floods and power cuts, but all parties uh, across the political spectrum have failed to address any of these issues, which are um, definitely of concern for, for residents across the country. And talking about concerns and also expectations, the international community has been quite vocal in sort of uh, harnessing Lebanon uh, in forcing the government to, and the 
current cabinet to enforce reforms. And this is obviously very much influenced by a much needed IMF funding. So what is the feeling there? What are Western governments looking out for and uh, mostly regional governments? Yeah, so originally the international community, notably Western governments, expected that the Lebanese government wouldn't have sufficient funds and or the political will to proceed with holding the elections on the 15th. However, the Arab League, French and US representatives have made it clear that elections must be held on time and in a fair and transparent manner. But despite this, some members of the international community may well still be secretly surprised if the elections indeed go ahead as planned. And beyond this, they'll be maintaining a watchful eye over electoral proceedings. So upon invitation, the European Union has deployed an EU election observation mission to provide uh, political, financial and technical support to Lebanon's electoral processes. The mission will include about 200 observers on election day and is set to remain in country until 6th of June, possibly accounting for expectations of some delays to the verification of results. And this could be subject to extension to provide additional support in light of the refusal of Lebanese judges to oversee the vote counting process in protest against poor economic conditions and low wages. Now, global financial institutions, you mentioned the IMF and, for example, the World Bank, will also hold key interests in the elections, as will third party donors such as the US. Expectations are likely very cautious at this stage, but there's some tentative though unlikely hopes that elections will provide the impetus for political change, which could drive the implementation of structural economic reforms so necessary for Lebanon to obtain crucial third-party donor funding. Thank you. It appears that something we can all agree on is that these elections appear to sort of forecast more of the same for Lebanon. And it's certainly very difficult to give any forecasting on what exit polls will look like. But going a step further, what should we be looking at after the polls close and the results come out, Rhiannon? Yeah, so amidst, you know, high levels of public frustration, that hasn't changed. And as we've all said, there's very high levels of disillusionment as well with Lebanon's political system. We've seen accusations, as I said, of of voter intimidation. And so it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, after results come out, what the domestic voter turnout was. As Anastasia added, compared with the diaspora of of expat voting, it'll be very interesting to see how many people turned out domestically to vote. And from interviews and kind of local media outlets as well, they've, you know, reported a real sense amongst the Lebanese population that these votes are surface level and, and as you said, won't make much difference to the actual status quo of Lebanon. We've even seen President Aoun say, say the same thing in a, in a press conference. So when you have high, high level members of the political system stating that these elections won't, will make minor changes, this is likely to reflect in, in the mood and attitudes uh, post-elections. Ironically, you know, we spoke about what's going to happen after the elections. Ironically, I think that most unrest is actually going to occur in the 24 hours either leading up to the election or following the release of results. Already we've seen the Lebanese authorities actually put a curfew in with kind of most shops and non-essential businesses having to close at 1am on on the Sunday morning and motorcycles uh, and other types of vehicles are actually not allowed throughout the streets on polling day. So I think they're anticipating quite a lot of unrest and trying to preempt this and and following the release of results and, and the weeks after polling as well. In my opinion, the Lebanese situation may replicate the aftermath of what we saw with the Iraqi elections in October, specifically with the complications of the the actual voting system itself. 
it's going to make government formation and any any form of political stability after polls very contentious and antagonistic in nature. We're already seeing this. As I said, we can expect regular bouts of unrest in, in urban areas, but also nationwide. And this can be either driven by members of the public themselves or voters aligned with specific parties dependent on the results. Events can turn violent if protesters are armed or grievances are, are driven by sectarian tensions. Again, we have seen this before. You know, similar to Iraq in the event that Hezbollah or other Iran-backed parties don't perform as they expect, bouts of violence to, to reassert their influence and, and power across society are a high possibility. Unfortunately, although Nasrallah is he's denied a return to civil war and he's kind of really he's noted this as a red tape. Memories of sectarian violence in Beirut that occurred only last October are all too recent. And we can expect these parties to be real spoilers going forward if they if they don't perform as they wish. You know, on that note, parties have already shown their willingness to boycott or obstruct structural changes if results don't complement their strategic interests. And so there is a high possibility as well that we see accusations of electoral fraud even after results are in and requests for a recount, which again will delay government information going forward. We've seen accusations of electoral bribery, etc., which most members actually are guilty. It's not just specific parties. But we will see kind of opposition parties use these to decry the results of the polling and demand a recount. Unfortunately, from what I've said, it's a pretty bleak outlook, but it is the maintenance of the current status quo, and this is highly likely. And as Annie noted, there, there's kind of going to be resistance to third party support from the international community if certain results come in, especially dealing directly with Hezbollah, who we have to remember is still designated as a terrorist organization by the US. And from what we've seen, they haven't shown any willingness to, to kind of enact these critical reforms as per the IMF loan conditions. This includes kind of the restructuring of the financial sector to restore banks' viabilities. And then also start to kind of establish a credible and, and transparent monetary and exchange rate system. And then finally, what's interesting with this vote, as we've stated, is kind of the role of independence, what kind of impact they can bring. Unfortunately, again, the nature of Lebanon's system and its proportional representation or semi-proportional representation, a, a weird sort of um, version of this, lends to sectarian divisions and, and deepening the sectarian divisions, um, ironically, instead of kind of complementing them. And so it, it really does provide a difficult space for independence to gain any form of meaningful foothold. And then even when we look at the actual economic plans of the independence, again, they don't necessarily lend any form of radical change or impact in the long term. And so this leaves us with kind of more uncertainty surrounding the, uh, the presidential election, which will occur once Ayun leaves in the presidential palace at the end of October, which again, he has reiterated today. So yeah, a pretty bleak outlook for the foreseeable future and, and in the aftermath of the elections, I'm afraid. Thank you very much for those thoughts. Unrest is not new to, to Lebanon. And so we've seen upticks of, of civil unrest and in-person protests, which have triggered significant disruptions. So Anastasia, what should businesses and companies be looking at and, and what are implications for them with regards to, to these elections? Yeah, so as highlighted by Rhiannon, we're likely to see the majority of domestic unrest directly ahead of, but mostly in the weeks after Sunday's vote, of course, having some tangible implications for locally operating businesses. Now, the relative weakness and underfunding of Lebanon's army reduces the likelihood that security forces will be able to effectively contain unrest. And this increases the probability that demonstrations could escalate into large-scale nationwide protests, possibly including riots, elevating the likelihood of violent clashes and consequently bystander risk for personnel. Now, related to this, 
large scale domestic unrest would generate disruptions to overland transport, both within cities and across regions. Protesters have in the past tended to erect roadblocks. Um, not only this, but possible protest related disruptions to government services could also have knock on implications for the effective distribution of energy and fuel supplies across the country, uh, resulting in long queues at petrol stations, uh, which could themselves run dry. Then this would present the risks of operational disruptions to nationwide supply chains. Thank you. And what about the, the longer term forecast? I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the short to medium term in implications, but what do we see a little bit with a more strategic and forward looking outlook? Politically speaking, the decisive victory of a party or possibly several forming a coalition will likely give them the upper hand in choosing a new president in the upcoming October presidential elections. However, as I briefly mentioned when we were talking earlier about the international community, the parliamentary elections are unlikely to prompt a notable political change in Lebanon. As such, the country is likely to continue to face the same challenges with the same status quo, or at least very similar to the current state of affairs, as political elites and parties fight to retain power and influence. Now, in tandem with the contestation of electoral results, possibly from losing parties, Political paralysis will most likely remain a key feature of Lebanon's political system and continue to hinder government efforts to agree on and implement the reforms necessary to obtain foreign funding in the coming months. Even in the event that some reforms are pushed through, public backlash against, for example, IMF-mandated austerity measures is likely to prompt, again, large-scale domestic unrest and possible policy reversals. So regardless, Lebanon's economic crisis is not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, thank you very much for this summary. Lots to think about. Thank you both for having joined me today. We will definitely be discussing this topic in the future. And now let's take a look at the events coming up this week. I'd now like to welcome our Asia-Pacific Associate Analyst, Supriya Ravishankar. Thank you so much, Valeria. So from the APAC region, between the 11th and the 23rd of May, Vietnam will host the 2021 Southeast Asian Games in Hanoi. The hosting of the delayed international multi-sport events features 11 Southeast Asian countries, and it will cause transport and supply chain disruption in Hanoi and likely in the surrounding region in the north as organizers implement a closed-loop system to prevent COVID outbreaks among participants of the Games. Further in APAC, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is set to visit Nepal on the 16th of May. Modi will make his first visit to Nepal since Sher Bahadur Dubey became Prime Minister again. And while the two leaders share a positive relationship, anti-India sentiment is still apparent on the ground and small yet significant protests in Kathmandu are likely during Modi's visit. Finally, in South Africa on the 17th of May, the trial of former President Jacob Zuma will take place in the High Court in Peter Maritzburg. Pro-Zuma protests are likely in the area, which will be met with strong resistance by security forces who are known to use excessive force. This elevates the threat for the safety of business staff and assets, while increased security deployment will likely also cause disruptions for the movement of goods. Thank you very much. And thank you all for tuning in today. Should you have any questions, please feel free to reach out at info at Until next week, goodbye.